You're listening to Living Cities Forum podcast. This podcast comes as part of our 2022 forum, where we discuss material flows, a theme that examines the global material flows that underwrite our growing built environments. For more, visit livingcitiesforum.org or subscribe to the Amphibian podcast. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we're holding this and on which we live and work, the Wurundjeri people, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Um, thank you to the organizers. It's great you did the thank you in the middle of the day, Andrew, because again, it always gets forgotten at the end, but thank you to the Naomi Milgram Foundation and those who are working in and around it to make this happen. What an amazing day of speakers. Joseph's last speech there is in my head, that kind of... Um, dizzying, Eemsian collapse from the planet Earth all the way down to what looked like pate coming out of a machine <laughs> at the end there in a, in a small place in the middle of Rome. So we've grown through a lot today. Um, and uh, just before we get to some conversation here, and as Mel did earlier, I'd encourage you to jump in and throw questions of each other as much as possible. Um, I'd also just like to note the release of the report on Tuesday on the state of the environment in Australia, which was uh, about as sobering as it could be. I think the line from the environment minister was that the environment is bad and getting worse, which is almost an understatement, to be honest. Um, but then the policy response immediately floated with something along the lines of, we'll protect 30% of the land and sea by 2030. And you're kind of thinking, by 2030... <laughs> What about now? And 30%, um, what about the other 70%? Are we not protecting that? We know the answer. And um, protect isn't exactly the right word based on a lot of what we've talked about today. It might be the right instincts, but it doesn't really capture the custodianship that we heard a lot about. So I'm really, um, that is in my head as well, alongside hearing then actually very positive messages from Uncle Dave around circular ecologies from... Uh, around enlightening and indigenizing at the same time. How do we do that? As my mate Kevin O'Brien said, the past has not passed. Um, indigeneity is not uh, the opposite of modernity. You know, they're both in the same place at the same time. So within all of that, I just um, I'd reflect on the Tasmanian writer Peter Conrad, who said a long time ago, 1984, the city is a built dream. A vision incarnated. What makes it grow is its image of itself. And we can see, if we look out the window in Melbourne, we might see an image or a dream of the 20th century city, maybe, or one dream, anyway. It's full of 20th century objects like cars and um, concrete and steel towers, but we're sort of still living with it. But what, so what dreams now are in our heads? What images, what visions now might we build based on today's conversation? So with all that, I thought we would start actually with Tian Tian, if that's okay, because uh, I know it's always hard to juggle someone on a screen, so I'm going to, I'm going to jump there straight away. And um, first of all, congratulate you on your amazing work. And it's just so extraordinary. And, and Mei Ling and I were sitting next to each other watching it, and if you don't mind me uh, saying, you sort of said at one point, whispered in my ear, it's like every project is a beautiful miracle. <laughs> It really was. It was just like this amazing total work of art covering almost every aspect of life. And I, and I want to home in Tian Tian, if that's okay, on the factory projects that you did around, I suppose there were factories, they were also kind of food processing around 
tofu and, and sugar. And there was such an extraordinary total project. Uh, okay. So, Joseph. <laughs> regarding Tientian's amazing factory projects, <laughs> you were actually telling me that you uh, first came across her work in 2003 when you were asked to put together a book around Asian architects or emerging Asian architects. And you went to see her at that point and, and met her, I believe, or you, you saw that work, and you were reflecting on the shift in both in quality in almost every dimension. So with all due respect to her work in 2003, which I'm sure had the, the DNA, no pun intended, of what it would become, um, you, you then also talked about how refined the material outcomes had become when we're looking at the tofu factory and that beautiful drift down the hill mirroring the tofu production process. Uh, she's now back, but I'm going to ignore her. <laughs> um, so... Uh, it was, but also this kind of overall conception that was also about the social organization and the collective ownership of the labor and so on. And I will come to Tientian in a moment to ask her how that was working with the villagers on that. But is that beginning to be what you're getting at for a different kind of architecture, which is to do with spatial exploration, spatial intelligence and material outcomes, but is also about the social process of co-designing it and building it? It's about the organization of the labor. It's about understanding traditional production and modern technology at the same time. And it's embedded deeply in a place, in this case, the Songyang Valley. Is that the kind of thing that you were driving towards at the end there with your sense of what a, what a super local architecture could be like? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, what's incredible uh, about your work, uh, Tian Tian, is the... Um, delicacy and the, the sensitivity towards community. The, uh, it was, it, I think that the, the formal um, competence of it is absolutely clear. I mean, in, in the photographs, it's, it's clearly compositionally excellent. The details, everything's excellent about it. But I think what's important is that that would not have been possible without a deep understanding of the community that it was built for. And I think that's exactly the point, that what's missing in this sort of bird's eye view of the city, this idea that we can parachute into any corner of the world and just build um, something in a certain style and that's good enough. Um, I think that's precisely what's missing. And, and it, it really kind of goes back to this idea of embracing externalities, embracing the real cost of making a building. If we're not able to take, engage with the community and work to the extent as possible with um, making sure that nobody is paying the price for those buildings who's not been part of the decision to uh, make them in the first place, then something's wrong. And I think it's a fantastic example of um, doing exactly that, of taking really sort of all-encompassing full responsibility for building and not simply offloading somewhere else um, the consequences of that decision. Absolutely. So, uh, Tian Tian, hello, I hope you can hear us okay. Um, I was asking about the uh, tofu factory and the, um, the projects also around sugar, I guess, the, the f in the factory production, and how extraordinary they were. And I wanted to d dig a bit deeper into that, um, how you worked with the local residents there, the villagers. How did, how did they feel about the possibility of taking those traditional practices 
and updating them, working with modern technology alongside traditional practices, and the collectivization of the economy at that local scale. How did you as an architect um, or an urban designer architect get, get that to happen? What, was, what did the process look like of working with the villagers, if I can ask? Um, then I would like to say that the meaning of material actually have uh, multiple meanings for us. So we did work with local material, physical material, and it's very, uh, I would say it's by convenience. Uh, we just find whatever that's on site that's uh, familiar to the village community. So it's part of the strategy because of the low budget and also to engage the community to um, first of all, to, to, to know, to understand that this is the material they're familiar with. And uh, again, they are also the very skilled local construction workers. So that's all kind of a, a um, system to work in this um, uh, uh, rural region, uh, a revitalization process. But I, I would also like to say that to point out that not only the building material or the technique, we do respect local um, life um, the tradition, the history, the legacy, the, the heritage, and also the agricultural production. I mean, these are all very impressive and inspiring. And we take these as the social material. Um, so that's actually part of the, to engage with our, our architectural design. Um, so when you look at the factory, the tofu factory, um, it's not about the, the material, um, the wooden structure or the kind of the detailing that you would um, um, pay attention to. It's rather the kind of uh, the life performance of their agricultural heritage. Mm. So, yes, I, I think this um, actually, in a way, it, it, I, I, I thank you, uh, Joseph, for your comments. And I think that's very inspiring lecture you just gave. Um, and that's exactly what we've been thinking. You know, architecture is not about very narrowed definition that we have learned from universities, mm -hmm. but it's rather to take architecture, you know, in the especially in the rural practice, you are able to push it into more anthropological dimension. Mm. Uh, very interesting. And, and uh, did you get a sense from the residents, the villagers that um, it's, it's what I think is um, Zhuawei Wang in her book, uh, their book, uh, Blockchain Chicken Farm, talks about metronormativity in China, as in the idea that the city is the answer and the rural population has to move to the city. You have to move to Beijing. You have to move to Shanghai. Um, did you find there that they were, they were caught in that current, that they thought, well, I need to now stop making tofu and become a YouTuber or, or work on uh, the equivalent of YouTube in, in Beijing? Or were you able to unlock this idea of their heritage actually is also their future in that sense? The past also informs the future. Yes, absolutely. Because of this, um, the preservation of local intangible cultural heritage that's becoming very valuable in our modern society. This is not you can find in our modern um, city life anymore. So this provides not only um, for the production um, as a business, but also it provides a cultural... We may never know. I'll, um, 
Okay, we may have lost a line to Beijing, so I'll, I'll press on. Because, uh, no, I'll press on. Hopefully Tian comes back. Um, I was actually going to swing to you next, actually mailing anyway, because this, this repositioning of rural culture um, and the processes and materials within it, I also felt in your work, it wasn't rural so much as maybe uh, you talked about the traditional understanding of um, African grains and the cook that you've been working with, the chef, for the last year or so. And that repositioning and respect is also, the respect is a word that's come up many times today. And I wanted to get you to talk a little bit more about that. Is that something you're explicitly trying to do with the work to understand the value in eggs um, in a place and uncover and reveal the deep histories within it? And, and I suppose to put that into context for everybody as well, regarding food, there's this book by B. Wilson, uh, The Way We Eat. And um, she talks about a research paper in The Lancet from 2015 which points out that the healthiest diets in the world, the highest quality overall diets, the 10 countries, I'll run through them very quickly, healthiest diet patterns, right? <laughs> Chad, Mali, Cameroon, Guyana, Tunisia, Sierra Leone, Laos, Nigeria, Guatemala, and French Guyana. Um, the least healthy diet patterns, Armenia, Hungary, Belgium, USA, Russia, Iceland, Latvia, Brazil, Colombia, Australia. So there's this kind of um, unbelievable history and presence of the quality of that food, but it's completely not... I mean, when I read this in this book, it was just uh, it was a shattering fact in that this research. Is that part of what you're trying to do here, is to reveal the qualities of a place through its food in that way? Um, and then as an architect, how do you reflect on what you're... What, what are you working with there? What are your relationships at play in that process? Yeah, that's a really complex question. Um, My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, one of the things that, you know, we've been visiting a ton of farms, and probably this last year was in more frequency, but we've been going to these farms over the last decade. And one of the critical things we realized was how you work backwards from more potent ways of changing people's behaviors, like through their food, through their taste, and working backwards to thinking about how do you design and farm. Um, and so this idea of looking at indigenous food production, how you deal with byproducts from food production, was sort of captured in this um, indigenous composting technique called proka which is done in the sort of Ashanti region in Ghana. But basically, anything that you farm um, is sold in the market, and every farmer actually takes the waste from the market and brings it back. And they have a very, very sophisticated system of composting at specific times, specific thicknesses, mm. so that the speed in which the materials go back to the soil is predictable. And, you know, when you drive into that farm where you have this indigenous proca technique that has been sustained now for about uh, 20 years, there's a marked difference from, you know, all of the pineapple, mango, monoculture plantations to his 20-acre farm. I mean, the microclimate is completely different. Right. The quantity, and we're talking about, you know, productivity, you know, is triple 
what happens, you know, right next door. And because that system works so well, we were trying to figure out how do you work backwards from that. And we started looking at, and this is research we're still doing, at soil sisters. If you grow different crops together in specific quantities, what types of waste would come out from that? And what types of building materials would you start engineering? Because it's so in harmony with the way, you know, these effective systems that have lasted for thousands of years um, have nurtured and kept the soil healthy. Um, so for me, it's, it's very connected um, because I think working from the bottom up when you have such a wide catalog of, you know, options in terms of designing materials, the sky's the limit. And I think when you look at systems that have persisted successfully, um, that's where we find, you know, sort of that clue. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, so, and we were talking about this before a while ago. Um, sort of food becomes when you sort of turn agriculture into culture. <laughs> it becomes food in an interesting way. It, and, and that sense of the way that you use um, art, use art installations or uh, something hovering between architecture and art quite often, I think, in your work. Are you um, exploring this idea of how, how do we use an installation as a simulator of a possible world, you know, something else that could happen, and giving people a chance to explore that? I was really struck with your thing about mycelium nearly making it into the BMW, but then it smelled of mushrooms too much. You know? <laughs> and it wasn't that it smelled bad, it's just we weren't used to that in a car. So this, this sense of how you would shift a perception of something, we see this around indigenous Australian food. Bruce Pascoe talks about how it was distinctly othered in the past by it was just being saying, well, it was just witchetty grubs and stuff like this. And of course, it was actually a really super diverse range of things, some of which would be very in tune with a, a Western diet and some not. But um, are you trying to sort of shift a cultural perception around the food in that way to kind of prepare the ground for some much broader cultural change? Is, is that by using art installations? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest barriers in using these materials are cultural. Yeah. And in places like the Global South, the customers for these products are the most difficult to convince because building with concrete, glass and steel our materials of the future, it's about mod being modern and progressive. And that aspiration is something that, you know, is, is, is tied up in much deeper codes, to mm. use in these term. Mm. Um, a lot of it has to do with thermal comfort. Mm -hmm. You know, this perception that you have control over your environment. When you click a remote control button, you're gonna get cool, dry air very predictably, very quickly. Whereas these materials are incredibly slow in terms of you know, comparison in mediating your thermal microclimates. Um, and I think because of those deep cultural codes, trying to create the taste or shift people's cultural perceptions around these materials, mm. is very difficult to do by just saying, hey, this coconut panel is as strong as oak. Mm. Um, the, the visual, the tactile, all of the design for the senses have to be employed. And also reconstructing what the, the meaning of these materials are. And so one of the most potent things in some of the art installations I've, I've looked at is spaces of extraction. Mm. So the mycelium tunnel was a mining tunnel. The coconut um, threshold was the door of no return in a slave castle. You think about slavery as a 
another form of extraction. Um, meadows, where you've got you know, continuous extraction of, of plants, and it's a sign when a meadow starts to form, a sign of healing. And so those, those really symbolic uh, spaces are sort of um, a way to attach new meaning. Yeah. Um, and those are sort of the, the symbols, the, the forms that I try to yeah. sort of reconstitute with these bio-based uh, materials. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic work. And, and Joseph, you use similar techniques, I guess, in terms of you, you showed us a bunch of installations, having set the scene with... Um, a big picture, you know, you're then, I guess, are you, are you trying to embody the questions implicit in the data that you showed us, the, the limits to growth and so on? Are those the, the kind of currents you're trying to get to flow through the installations? And, and then within that, there are possible futures that can emerge from a place. Is that, is that what's going on there? Yeah, I guess the thing um, that is most difficult to um, test or to prove is that it is actually possible to, way, to build in a way that is not dependent on massive global supply chains, on a certain palette of materials, on a certain um, productive process that involved, involves sort of scattered geographies um, and that is so complex that it requires a vast number of people uh, and specialisms, otherwise it's simply not going to work. Um, and so the, the, the reason I, I wanted to show those two projects, which are kind of incredibly simple projects and they're not comparable in any way to um, a, a sort of a full-scale architectural uh, permanent um, installation, but as um, an example of a certain approach that over the coming years we're going to try to test at increasing scales and see whether just kind of starting from the assumption that it is possible to take what's available within a certain radius, within a certain circumference, add um, possibly materials that are associated with a completely different moment in history, a certain completely different approach to architecture that are maybe even kind of considered um, obsolete. Um, <clears throat> look at what the ways in which um, technologies that are available to us now yeah. can actually re-empower or re, re um, cast those uh, technique, um, con uh, techniques in such a way that unexpected outcomes are possible, and then see to what, how far we can take that. Like, what is the kind of extreme? How mm. I don't want to say how big can you get because the point isn't necessarily size, <laughs> yeah. but um, how far can you go in sort of replacing that kind of doing a sort of uh, bait and switch with a traditional um, construction process. Yeah. Um, so we're working on a, a project in central Italy which is sort of starting from that premise and it's a, it's a commercial project, it's an agriturismo, a very beautiful site with um, a need for like a dozen or so um, very small sort of uh, chalets so to speak or um, small um, habitations for temporary for holidays. But it's a fantastic sort of test bed for thinking about, like, is it possible actually to kind of look around what's um, <clears throat> available in that region? What are the, both in terms of materials, but also uh, labor and skills and, uh, and so on? And how then can we add in a layer which is not simply sort of defaulting to uh, a certain idea of traditional architecture, but then augment that in something that wasn't previously possible, um, yeah. for example, through 3D printing? So. Yeah. 
it's more um, <clears throat> a test of a different paradigm and using a little bit. I think when we also need to be uh, smart and strategic um, in uh, capturing imagination. Mm -hmm. I think uh, for human, as, as a, uh, humans, we're very much driven by the imagination of um, something that is new and um, uh, that, that maybe wasn't previously possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and just seeing how we can actually sort of uh, mm -hmm. uh, be strategic in uh, using that as a kind of a Trojan horse to introduce also kind of what's implicit in that is a completely different idea of the architect. Absolutely. And, and that's partly why I started with that um, the city is a built dream quote, you know, the sort of this, the, the, the imagined city is kind of what gets built in, um, to some extent. And it, I want to come back to you, Tian Tian, um, around the, the kind of local engagement that Joseph was talking about there, as in the understanding of a place and the materials and cultures within it is, is clearly evident in your work in the Songyang Valley over the last 20 years or so, a repeated set of projects there. And I wonder, does that make you think um, about the idea of a local architect in a way? Uh, my colleague at the University of Melbourne, Rory Hyde, talks about the doctor. The doctor is also a professional, like, a, like an architect, but a doctor tends to be in a neighborhood or a bit of a city at least. And they might see 15 different people a day and in theory make their lives better every single day. Whereas an architect, if they're good, maybe they do 15, 30 projects in their whole career possibly all over the place, you know. So, so we have this idea that the architect is a bit more like this kind of global figure, it's become like this, and yet your work is super local, and I think all, all three of you in different ways have talked about that. Do you envisage that you could, you could set up as the, the local architect for the valley in that way, or that there might be one in every village that you then work with? How, how does that work? But while you're also based in Beijing, I guess, and you're also part of a, a global practice at the same time. Um, I would say we are the very local practitioner um, in that way. Even the office is in um, Beijing. Um, but then we have been working in the region for the for past years, and that's our, you know, we have been only working in that region. So in this way, it, it's um, I think it's more efficient for us to um, for our um, projects. You know, we don't have to take um, trips to every different cities in this process. Um, but then on the other hand, it's also making you a local, um, you are part of the locals, you are, you really um, understand the local life and tradition better mm. in that sense. So instead of hopping between cities, I think um, if you want to push architecture to a different level, really to make a change in the place, to make, to, like we said, to revitalize the rural, um, you have to spend time really focus on this place. Um, and I think I take it also as a respect to this place. Um, compared to this, um, we, we have been calling on our methodology as architectural acupuncture. And in that way, it also refers to the practice of doctor. It's really to target the issues. We wanted to solve the problem, uh, the, 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 the issues that the Lakota villages are facing. And in a way, it's also making architecture as part of the a healing treatment. 
And we have been working with different village communities one by one, and all the construction teams are from the village. So, I mean, we have been working with over um, maybe 20 um, different villages in, in this region. And this is a part of the, I think we're rather working on a strategy instead of a number of projects. We wanted to say that the case of Songyang practice is to provide a sustainable social strategy for other rural regions. Yeah, it's so interesting. Thank you. I mean, that, the, the idea of the local practitioner it, it's so interesting in that way in terms of building trust in a community, understanding the rhythms and materials and dynamics and cultures of the place. And, and it's so counter mailing this sort of the way that we often think about scaling. And I wanted to just maybe finish on this question of scaling. Um, Indy did a fantastic job first thing today about, um, I'm going to go for the third book, Monster Fuller reference, um, making, the prob making the problem bigger, you know, <laughs> as in it's a way of unlocking actually more possible solutions sometimes. And, and he, of course, said the scale of the challenge. I lost track of the dizzying amount of numbers of homes that need retrofitting every day in the UK. And within your work, you're, you're, I suppose you're, you're caught between this tension of do we do sort of super local, biodiverse, um, companion planting locally using in indigenous practices of very diverse planting, which we know would be good for the soil and would be good for the local environment and enable the kind of local culture that I think all three of you are working with as well, local production, essentially staying local, requiring a lot of tending and custodianship versus, I think you mentioned to me, that actually to some extent to build the scale out for the building materials that we might need, we might actually need monocropping of some of those things to some degree because it's easier to then produce than X thousands of the, the bamboo facade treatments that you're making, so, or sorry, the um, coconut husk. So how are you balancing these things? Are you, are you looking at the scale of the challenge and that we need to retrofit all our homes, so we need a diversity of biomaterials at scale, and we want to scale those things up? Or is it scaling down, by, or relational scaling, building in a place locally and keeping the materials local and then multiplying that in a distributed model? How do you, how do you see things, or are you just exploring both of them? Yeah, I mean... It's a tough question, but I think, I mean, I've, I've been a farmer for the past year, and whoa, I'm never doing that again. I'm just joking. <laughs> it's a lot of work. I mean, six months, and I can barely make a bowl of rice with what we've grown, yeah. you know. And I think that there is benefits to centralizing agriculture to serve a majority of the population. Um, and that inventory... Um, can form this sort of base load that everyone has access to. It might be straw, that might be corn, it might be bamboo. Really fast-growing growing crops. I think Vodis, uh, bamboo in Vietnam grows five years. That's much faster than what everybody keeps touting as the solution cross-laminated timber to become structure. And you look at the life cycle of a tree, um, you look at the pace at which trees grow, 30 to 40 years, and they're so important as carbon sinks, they have so many other functions as we've discussed today, yeah. that that will not be the major DNA that goes into our, our materials in our buildings. These renewable, fast-moving crops can be sort of a carbon, temporary carbon storage. 
Um, and then I think what's local has so much value because there's an intelligence, they've been tempered in place. And that layering of these more smaller quantities of local materials, particularly in surfaces, and that bulk material that comes out of major agriculture as the infill, as the meat, um, I think within that we have such a wide range of applications from insulation in the global north, structural materials, um, new, new builds, things that reinforce earth in the global south. And, you know, if you look at every continent in the world, the rate of supply of agricultural waste far exceeds the demand for building materials by an order of magnitude. Um, so I think, you know, this low carbon stock is, is really key. Um, and with agricultural waste, we cannot divorce it from our growth. That's so interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's so interesting because that begins to flip this idea of what the um, Australian feminist geographer Val Plum would call shadow places, which is the waste is happening over here, we consume it here, but we have no idea of what's what the impact in this shadow place. And you're in a sense saying that the agricultural waste, actually we can use that absolutely very clearly in a very dynamic way. So it's not a shadow over here, it's actually a production site based on production we're already doing and wasting. So a complete reversal in that way. Um, I think we're over time. Uh, so I'm going to, uh, I, we could have carried on talking for a long time, but uh, thank you so much. I'd like to just, uh, just reflect on that. We've been veering across food and factories and culture and respect and variations on truth-telling and revealing here all these invisible patterns at the same time. And I love the sense of what Tian Tian was talking about, the local practitioner addressing somehow global systems and challenges at the same time, either through the very distributed model or the way you just described about shifting a means of production in, a, in an incredibly powerful way. So, and we've seen architecture and design's role moving incredibly fluidly across that, designing menus and, and um, valleys at the same time and all points in between. So thank you so much. Uh, please, everybody, join me in thanking our panelists, Mei Ling and Joseph and Tian Tian. You're listening to Living Cities Forum podcast. This podcast comes as part of our 2022 forum, where we discuss material flows, a theme that examines the global material flows that underwrite our growing built environments. For more, visit livingcitiesforum.org or subscribe to the Amphibian podcast.